Welcome to the CanoeRaceWorld.com podcast, your home for everything related to marathon canoe racing. Now, it's time to get your paddles wet with your hosts, Kevin Olson and Bill Mahaffey. Take it away, boys. Welcome back, Canoe Race World fans. I'm Kevin Olson here with another episode of the Canoe Race World podcast. I am joined with Bill Mahaffey and Rebecca Davis. And tonight we are discussing the Classic. We are doing the Classic recap show. Looking to give you guys some uh, good content. How are we doing tonight, Bill? We are doing great, Kevin, and I got to see if I can get the entire classique name here. Classique de Canu de la Maurice. I yeah. don't know if I got that or not, but hey, we're <laughs> going with it, right? How are we doing tonight, Rebecca? Oh, I'm doing great. I've been enjoying some off-season paddling, doing some different things, getting ready for, I guess, just a fun fall. Yeah, yeah. off-season off paddling is the best. We did a little bit of that today, uh, the, the paddle wife and I did. And there was a brief moment where her paddle went down in her lap, and she just kind of gave me this look like, are you kidding me? We're really going through here? And I was like, yeah, trust me. There's a line here. It's okay. <laughs> right? Yep, yep. So, yeah, I was definitely not going to try to butcher uh, the full name of the classic, so I will always refer to it as just the, the, the classic. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, so we are post-classique, so we are now officially in the off-season when it's in terms of the Triple Crown of Marathon Canoe Racing, but there are a couple of random races out there, and Rebecca's going to be participating in Chattajack, which is a race down in uh, the southeast. That is a pretty popular event. But other than that, that's pretty much the biggest race that's out there for the rest of the season. Can you guys think of any others? Yeah, nothing uh, we just for wrapped, you. Yeah, see, we, we just, we wrapped, just wrapped up, up in Michigan. Michigan. Yep. Yeah, and uh, New York just wrapped up with a 90 past weekend. Let's uh, let's let's get right to it. We are going to be talking about the Classic. It was it looked from a spectator's point of view to be quite an interesting one. Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about the conditions of the race this year? I guess first I would say they they varied a lot more so than any other Classic I've done. All three days were very distinct and took different skills. So uh, one thing, if as we go through uh, recapping, you notice teams are bouncing around a lot between the three days, and that's why. Day one, which is the longest mileage that we cover, can't remember exactly how many kilometers it is, but day one, straight shot downstream with a very stiff headwind and all day. Uh, we never let up from, from the start to finish. It was just incredibly strong. Day two, the complete opposite, so an equally strong wind, but a tailwind, so true downwind downwind conditions, very surfable waves, pretty big swell for on a river anyway, so that was, you know, comp- entirely different, and you really saw that shake the results up, and then day three, which tends to have some of the rougher portions of the race, was pretty flat, except for the rapid deforge, which is you know, the, the big rapids everyone kind of talks about at the end of day three. And and that, I, w- I don't know if it was smaller than some years or if it just appeared smaller after two days of, like, brutal beating by the wind. <laughs> but it seemed like, in general, most teams made it through pretty well. And uh, the, the casualties were more the ones that ran the really aggressive lines, probably because we've been beat around by the waves so much that people were willing to take a little bit more of a risk there but you know that's that's kind of a rite of passage there everyone gets dumped at some point in those rapids so <laughs> so some teams managed to but yeah it was it was a really variable really mentally challenging and and different than it's been it changed the race for the mid pack more than the front the front teams mm-hmm. were still able to kind of keep it a pack race but for everyone kind of in the middle it it kind of changed things up quite a bit 
Yeah, that that was something that I noticed looking at the results after the days. And it's kind of a little bit hard looking at just the general overall classification results because I'm not I'm on their website now trying to look over to see if they have the results for each day and I'm not seeing it. I can maybe send it a, maybe to you, a, Kevin. Yeah, maybe it's here. That's that's on social media as well. It looked like, it definitely looked like it bounced around a bunch. Uh, I was definitely going to ask that because I know that from uh, looking at the results in previous years, it seemed like a lot of times that, you know, you take day one results and they're not drastically different from day two and day three. Whereas and it did seem like this year there definitely was more more shakeup in the, in the results as a whole from day to day. If you took, you know, the the result, the each day results and looked at them down the line it was it was quite interesting so um, would it rebecca would it be safe to say that day one really favored those that were strong from the technical aspect of being able to paddle into a into a headwind i mean that is an art form and a skill that not every marathon canoe paddler actually develops right because it's not something that we do a ton of outside of a a situation like that or if you're dedicated lake paddling into a headwind yeah it definitely favored teams that had the experience or technical skill in the bigger water and it was it was choppy enough that we needed a bow cover pretty much all day uh there were you know a few sections here and there where you you didn't but if you didn't have one on you were pretty much taking on water and the race really stayed uh the the first couple teams stayed together or the first four, I believe, stayed together pretty much all day. Uh, and that might seem weird because usually a stiff headwind breaks the pack up. But when you have those top four teams all know how to paddle in the big water, there's not a lot of chance for separation. You're not going to make any big like sprints or bursts to get away because it's just so hard to just even keep the steady pace going. Uh, that was actually my next question was how did that impact the the pack aspect of, of racing on day one at the Classique? Yeah, so if we, if we go through, like, I'll just do a quick rundown of the results from day one. Typically, just for reference, this takes the top teams usually right around five and a half hours, maybe 545. Uh, almost never are they over six hours. And this year, the winning time for stage one was six hours and 27 minutes. So that just tells you, like, how brutal the conditions were to lose basically an hour. <laughs> In, in six, you know, uh, in first place, we had Mike Davis and Steve Lajoie. Second on the day was Guillaume Blay and Jimmy Pellerin. Third was Christophe Marchand and Weston Willoughby. Fourth was Louis Simon Pruneau and Serge Paget. And fifth was Christian Charette and Pio Kesnel. Those teams, so basically at the front of the pack, um, you had those first four were all together the whole day and it just it it had a really hard time separating because you even in the headwind you can ride fairly well so you can ride stern wave pretty easily and like I said it was really hard to break up like the pack of you know everyone's pretty skilled in those top boats it also kind of neutralized the shallow section so there's not shallow like you consider the a sobble shallow but kind of suckier sections where typically day one will start to break up a little bit more um, in the last maybe two hours of the race. And those pretty much were, they were there, but you just didn't really have any chance to make a break. So I know the talking to the guys in the front pack, they pretty much just took turns pulling. Sometimes it was hard, sometimes it wasn't, but nobody was really making any headway. So they just kind of hung together and it actually did start to die down a bit, maybe the last hour of the race. So it looked like it was going to be a pack finish. But the final mile, it got really rough, like rougher than it had been all day. And uh, there were some pontoon boat wakes with people following the race. The wind waves built up and it just the river gets inc- like wider than it is for the whole rest of the day right at the finish line. And uh, Mike and Steve were able to catch a... I guess a random pontoon wave on a little bit of a shallower spot of the corner got that to break, you know, break the pack up. And then if you've seen any of the videos, maybe we can post some of those here. Uh, they really displayed great technique going into the finish. And it looks like the waves weren't really disturbing their boat at all. 
And then when you see about 20 seconds later, Guillaume and Jimmy and Kristoff and Weston coming in, um, they look like they're in a very rough body of water with a lot of bouncing. So that was kind of the difference there. And then it, I think the rest of the race, pretty much people were in packs for the most part, but the packs got really separated. Uh, and that was, again, just all kind of based on the skill and the waves. So um, Christophe Prue and Sarah Lassard finished in sixth. They were right behind uh, Christian Charette and Pio Kesnell. Uh, about 40 seconds and then it was a really good mixed battle um, with Ev Chamberlain and Francis Trudell um, they were another I think about 40 seconds back on Sarah and Kristoff uh, that was a really impressive day for them I think going into the race we felt like they were going to be really strong but seeing how tough the conditions were um, it kind of told us two things one is that Kristoff definitely came race ready and you know hung in there really well for such a long hard day and uh francis and ev are are definitely you know really competitive uh and and hung in there i think basically until the very end uh, my race didn't <laughs> didn't go quite as well the first day we had no technical difficulties as far as like tipping or leaks or baler issues uh, which some of the teams had uh we just didn't quite have our technique dialed for the headwind. So by the time we kind of got things figured out and moving, we were already quite a ways back. So we hung hung in there with uh, Dylan Kirk and Greg Lowry, um, one of one of a handful of all U.S. teams. Um, that was Greg's first classique and Dylan's second. But they were they were doing great out there, um, really paddling well. So we kind of hung with them most of the day and tried to make a move at the end, but it was a little, it was a little, uh, rough in that last choppy headwind for us. Um, so we actually finished fourth mixed on the day. Uh, Cecily Boogie and, uh, Danny Medina finished third, having a fantastic day. Uh, weren't very far behind Evan Francis, uh, but they flipped like a hundred feet from the finish. I, I think they may have sunk and then flipped. Because uh, it was it was wild out there, um, and then unfortunately, I, I believe at Classic you have to finish in the boat, so they couldn't swim across. So the, a pontoon or a safety boat came and helped them get back in. But you know the process of getting the boat emptied and then upright and then in to get back into the finish in such rough conditions was a bit of a challenge. So um, they still ended up, I think, beating us on the day by by five minutes but I think they might have been 10 to 15 ahead so we kind of lucked out there um some other teams that that struggled besides myself or Mike Schlimmer and uh Tony Mascot uh they they struggled a lot in the the headwind I think again just like a technique issue they actually switched ends um since they were bouncing and taking so much water on over yeah. the bow. <laughs> that, that's um, interesting. Yeah, so so they struggled a bit. Um, my dad and Bruce Barton and Solomon Carrier, they were having Baylor issues. They dumped three times, like, at feeds um, because they were taking on so much water. And fortunately, that was a one-day problem, so they got it resolved after that, but it made for a long <laughs> day one. <Yeah. laughs> um, but uh, the women's race was... Uh, I think about what we expected, um, Michelle Laprade and Phoebe Reese were the first women's team across the line and uh, looked, you know, really strong and solid in, in the headwind, had a nice day. So it was, yeah, it was eventful. And I think when everyone finished, they're like, we, we cannot have this headwind tomorrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's, let's move on to day two, right? Because. Well they want to sounds like the the day of paddling into the headwind <laughs> oh it for sure was what do you got kevin i i do want to make a note about mike schlimmer like i was thinking about this i think he is probably has the most uh race miles of anyone this year if you think about it because he has done the whole triple crown and then he did the yukon so I yeah and did he do any... the 92 yeah, he did the 90, and then I think he was in Canada. This, like, another. Yeah, so Weston <laughs> has to be second then, because we were thinking yeah. Weston's had a really impressive season, because he did Triple Crown Safari and then yeah. the 90 also. So he's 
he's probably a little behind Mike and mileage, but uh, that's yeah. an incredible amount of racing for both of those guys. Yeah, and 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 I really wanted to tie that back to that first day. It's surprising that Mike. Uh, and, you know, hearing that Mike uh, was having, you know, issues in the in the conditions because the the conditions in the Yukon are, are, are quite quite formidable. So you would think that um, he'd be ready for it, but it just goes to show how much a uh, te- uh, you know little differences in technique can make big differences in race results. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Mike has had top fives in many triple crown race and is one of the the most versatile paddlers in the sport. But yeah, it was just, I mean, technically it was just a really traditional, hard headwind day. You know, it was straight on, just brutal, you know, put your head down and and paddle hard into it. But the, the key, what really separated boats and where, where things... Um, like the packs broke uh, into little groups was really anytime the condition changed. So, so, you know, you come around a corner and then the wave is hitting slightly different or maybe it's white capping a little bit more. And that's where you'd see the pack break as people transition their strokes. So you kind of see, you know, the top teams like pretty easily got away once we, we do a kind of parade lap at the start and they pretty much got away right away. And then the, Next two or three packs uh, kind of established themselves over the next hour as we changed direction, went through the first speed zone. Yeah. And, and, and it was, you know, it's all just making sure to link those waves so the boat doesn't bounce and you keep that, that forward momentum and then also aren't sinking. Because <laughs> yeah. sinking was definitely, I, I did hear multiple teams had to dump. Um, I don't think a ton of teams flipped on day one, but it just, you know, it was really easy to take on water if you weren't um, kind of pulling the boat over the next yeah, that, wave. That was going to be my question is, is, is were the conditions like, was it like mandatory full skirt or otherwise I, you were in like big, big trouble? I, I mean, not like, man, I mean, so the stern, you didn't really need to have one on, uh, the, the bow, I would say if you didn't have a cover on, it would have been pretty difficult to not be dumping several times um especially the last like mile i think you pretty much needed a a full bow cover on um but even then like earlier in the day i mean they were you know we were paddling into white caps so it's i mean if you're you know going in kind of the more sheltered spot and kind of stayed out of the way but then you're out of the current and the current up there is still moving you really fast so (laughs) you need to take a good line even though you it, it made it interesting, too. You couldn't really see the lines that well through the, um, I won't call them drops, but, like, the more turbulent sections of the river because there was so much uh, headwind. Mm-hmm. And I guess the only way you could really tell is the waves would kind of build in those fast water sections Yeah. as the current was pushing against the wind. So that's, yep. it, it made it seem like there were almost rapids the first day, uh, relatively small rapids, but... Still enough. Again, you needed to have your cover on if you were going to take the best line. Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting because that's something that I deal with a lot with the uh, with tidal waters in in the the uh, my one river gets really wide, um, and it's really shallow, and so depending on the you get these building waves going the um, currents going against the the wind. And so that's, it, it's almost counter, it's, you have to read waves at that point to figure out where the current is yep. more so than reading the river like you traditionally would, like, you know, for like, you know, reading the Sable, you know, for example, you know, you're going to read that totally different than um, reading a wide river with lots of wind and strong yeah. current it's yeah absolutely it's um it's a way different ball game and that's I, again that comes into that skill set that was really specific and really important for day one uh it just you know there's a lot that goes into that because day one has a lot of different lines that are not good so knowing where to go and being able to read that with the completely different conditions than normal um was a challenge and 
and one that some teams really rose to and others struggled. Yeah, for sure. So, so why don't we uh, move on to day two? Day two was the polar opposite. So if you haven't been up to Classic, uh, when the first day ends kind of in the middle or between a few different towns, so people usually drive up. Uh, most people stay downstream of the finish line of day one. They kind of stay in the center of the course. Uh, so you drive right next to the river for almost the whole way up to the starting line for day two. And, you know, it's always, you're always looking like, how's the wind look <laughs> when you're driving by this <laughs> river for 30 or 40 K and driving up, we were all like, this is going to be a big, big day. Uh, a lot of white caps, but going the opposite direction. So it's kind of rare to have a tailwind up there, especially a pretty strong one. And these were probably, at least for the extended amount of time that we were in them, the largest wind waves I've been in a C2 in. They were pretty formidable. Uh, I, I've, you know, maybe had short bursts of like something a little bit bigger, but not much. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a completely different skill set, riding, riding a wave down, a, a downwind run, and we don't have a rudder, so you have to call your switches dead on. And then, yeah. you know, we, we run into the problem. Um, well, so if your switches aren't called dead on, your chances of tipping over are pretty good um, because you'll just spin completely sideways, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then, so we're all decked and everyone had a bow cover and most people had a stern cover as well. But then there was a concern of sinking from behind, especially sitting on the starting line because we had to grab the rope and it was, uh, uh, so I, and if anyone hasn't been up there, uh, when you line up on the St. Maurice, the current is so strong that they stretch a cable across the river between a few different um, anchored motorboats. And they actually have a tie that's on shore as well. It's tied to shore on one side. And uh, that's how we hold the lines. You have to back up, grab this cable. Um, so, you, so it holds the line true. And that, uh, getting back to that cable is always tough. So, there's a team that flipped um, on day two trying to back up to that in these, like, pretty big white capping rollers. And then, you know, just sitting there holding it, you don't really have a choice. If if the waves are breaking over the boat, <laughs> you're taking right, on water. Yeah, so yeah. Um, a lot of us had kind of, like, MacGyvered uh, covers behind the sternman. Uh, okay. So we couldn't take yeah. in water that way. Uh, so that was pretty much, I think most people were fully decked. I know Steve and Mike, I don't think Steve fully put on a stern cover, um, but they had a few times that they were pretty worried about sinking. <laughs> so yeah. um, that was, and it was wild too. Like you could sink either from taking water over the stern or if you got too far ahead on the wave, you could, even though you were fully decked yeah. in the bow when you're immersing your bow paddler to their chest, in right, a way, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You're, that's, you're still, still a, <laughs> that's a spot where bad things can happen potentially, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, day two historically, day two is less action than day one. Usually, the top teams try to break away day one, use the shallows, use the length of the day, uh, use the river reading to kind of make gaps, and then usually day two is. Even if it's sort of rough, um, usually the top teams, everyone's a little bit tired, so we don't have quite the sprint speed, but usually the top teams kind of just hang back and we can have a pretty large pack going into the first portage, which is maybe usually about two and a half to three hours into the race. So normally, like I've been in a pack of like eight to 10 coming in together into the first portage. So that's typically the pace is like more subdued and even even two hours into that first day, like sometimes there'll be 15 or even 20 teams together. Uh, so those front guys will just kind of take it easy because the race really breaks apart at the, at the first Portage in Grand Mare. Uh, this year though, with the crazy tailwind, um, things started to break a lot earlier. And a lot of that was because people were flipping. Uh, so the pack gets really nervous when people start tipping over and spinning out sideways. Uh, so they really want to 
those top guys want to get out of that, you know, where someone else's mistake can ruin their race. So they took off within the first 15 minutes, the top, uh, four, uh, probably six teams went off together. So, um, at the end of day two, it was one Mike Davis and Steve Lajoie, two Guillaume Blay and Jimmy Pellerin. Third, uh, was Louis Simon Pruneau and Serge Praget. Fourth, was Christian Charette and P.O. Kesnell. And I believe, I just want to make sure I don't skip anyone. Fifth was Jeremy Lavelle and Guy Russo. Uh, so anyway, those top four, or the top three, um, plus Guy and Jeremy and Sarah and Kristoff, so I guess it was the top. It was the top five on the day, and then Sarah and Kristoff kind of got away um, after the first round of tips happened. So, like maybe after the first ten or fifteen minutes, Kristoff um, Marchand and Weston Willoughby flipped. I think they were the first one to go in the in the lead pack, which was maybe sitting at fifteen boats at the time. And then maybe five or ten minutes after that, Real Carrier and his partner Florian H. He's a Long name, and I'm not sure. <laughs> Flor- Florian H. We'll stick with that. It's okay. Florian H. Um, Florian H. From Manitoba. Yes. Uh, he has a background in sprint uh, canoe and kayak, I believe, but super strong paddler. First triple crown race, and this was a beast of one. So shout out to him. Uh, but uh, anyway, those guys flipped. So then the front pack basically just strung out, and then it started to get extra rough, and the top three boats. Uh, just broke away from everyone. They kind of just got out there. I guess it was the top four, it looks like. So that, and that was Chris, Chris, the last of those was Christian Charette and P.O. Kesnell. So the top four men's teams got out. And then uh, Guy Rousseau and Jeremy Lavelle and Sarah Lassard and Chris Prue were together. And then Lonely Ryan and I were like 10 seconds to 20 seconds behind forever. <laughs> but we could never close the gap um, because you'd be surfing these waves and you can't go faster than the wave because you just like, I mean, the waves are going really fast, but you, you would kind of like surf down them and then the bow would just like shoot into it. So you could never like get over them. And you also couldn't like, basically the fastest you could go is just not screw up your speed on the wave. So if you got like a 10 second gap, it was really hard to close back down because you weren't going to yeah. climb the waves to get there. Um, so we kind of hung out, did get kind of even in the roughest spot of the day, and we took a little bit different line and came out, you know, further back again. But that's yeah. just kind of like, you know, that's the risk you take, right? We had nothing to lose. So it's like, we're going to take a different line. It maybe is going to pay off. Maybe it doesn't. Um, it didn't, but I don't think it, you know, Sarah and Kristoff were the strongest mixed team, so they, they should have won. <laughs> um, but we were happy to be mixing it up that day, especially after our tough day one to like be up there fighting it out. We finished seventh on the day. Uh, so we were happy with that, had really good runs on the portages, uh, which was surprising because you, you were so tense and focused all morning. Um, that you're like, there's no way I'm going to be able to get out and run, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and with the, with the top guys, um, you know, they, they ended up staying together again. Like I said, they kind of figured with how big the tailwind was, they could, you know, maybe get some gaps. Uh, but it was really hard again, because if, as long as you called right on the waves, there was no way to really get separation. So, you know, if you're racing like Gilman and Jimmy and Mike and Steve are just, so experienced that they're making those calls right and you're just mm-hmm. kind of hanging together so they had a couple times where they got a little bit of separation uh from each other but it, it wasn't long and i know guillaume and jimmy were hoping that the getting to the portages that's where they'd really be able to hit um hit mike and steve hardest so they were pretty content to like just kind of buy their time to get to the run and allow that to make some separation for them uh, but yeah, it was really interesting. Like you'll notice the, the time apart between teams in the field was not very far. Um, yeah. I don't know. First to last may, may have been further just because I know some people did have some swims and stuff, but, um, there, there just wasn't much separation between teams 
and it was just because the, the wind and the current were taking you so fast. Uh, so that day, actually, I thought was really fun, um, but technically very challenging. And uh, I know some teams ended up, um, after the first two days, there were some teams that dropped, and that's always unfortunate. I know Shirley Trudell and Louis, Louis Lefebvre were planning to finish their Triple Crown. <laughs> they made it halfway through day two, and um, mm-hmm. Shirley had a stomach virus, between like on day one through the night day one and then started day two and just you know had nothing in the tank and you you needed to be sharp for for the conditions on day two so they unfortunately had to pull out and I know they're just they're a team that has you know been really successful and done really well and have a lot of experience and it just wasn't in the cards for them this year so that kind of you know breaks your heart just knowing that they were going for their triple crown and got so close but weren't able to finish uh, finish out the last stage but uh yeah so really rough but all downwind so like you know mixed race it totally flipped things with Kristoff and sarah still in the lead but ryan and i moved up to second and then Danny and Cecily and Ev and Francis were together until they hit the portages. But I think Francis and Ev were the fastest portaging mixed team. Um, it seemed like they were running really well on day three as well. So they uh, broke away from Cecily and Danny. But um, that just shows you like how how wild the day was. Mike Schlimmer and Tony had a great day, day two. We were hanging out with them. Uh, women's team, like I said, Michelle and Phoebe, they they really had a good one that that day as well, um, and led the women for the first two stages. Yeah, um, yeah. I want to I want to uh, chat just a little bit more about the the downwinding, you know, the quote unquote downwinding, because um, this is would be like a big, um, you know, uh, if we talk about comparables to. Outrigger canoes because they love their downwinders. So my question is, is like in 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 Outrigger, they're always talking about the skill and downwinding and like connecting waves. My question is, is that even possible in a C two? Oh yeah, or... yeah, yeah. You can connect. I mean, there's because there's all sorts of different like in Outrigger speak. They talk about it like riding the bumps, right? So you, right, you have different yep. bumps. You have um, you have like thinking and I'm I'm no expert at this but you've got like your wind pattern and then you've got your river pattern right mm-hmm. so you they can be traveling different directions and at different speeds so like in the race that we were doing we have the current and then we also have the swell of the wind and then you also have some rollers off of boat like motorboat traffic right. that's following the race so you've got kind of three um different waves pulling you in different directions and then you get some pack wave um because even if you're a minute behind there's still like a little bit of interference from the other other canoes uh so yeah you absolutely can connect um you know get on yeah there's a lot of skill involved with that um connecting the waves and and getting a good a good push a lot of skill um you know, you have to be lined up correctly to follow the wave that you want to be on. Make sure it's not pulling you too far out of direction, even if it's fast. So that's a mm-hmm. like that's a decision. When I was talking about like we took a different line than Christoph and Sarah, um, we made the decision to run um, straight downwind on the waves for longer. Where they made a decision to cross the river, which was a little more protected uh, going into the mm-hmm. turn when the wind direction changed so we may have even got a little bit ahead doing that however when you get to the end of that kind of straightaway then you kind of end up in a more of a washing machine effect Mm -hmm. because you've got the the interference on shore so that's like an example of like you know we decided to take the big bumps connect them really surf the the biggest waves for as long as we possibly could um being the team that's behind right where they took the line that is I, I won't say safer, but more more predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were able to, you know, we kind of were the same going into it, but then at that point when it got a little 
wonky at the end for us. They were in, in a little bit cleaner water. Um, yeah, so you can definitely connect the different waves. And there's, like, like you said, a ton of skill to doing that. And it's one thing uh, when our guys get comfortable in outrigger canoes, they tend to do fairly well. Um, not not as good as like a, a native Hawaiian, but, you know, we kind of practice doing that stuff all the time, um, just on yeah. a smaller scale. So, yeah, it's it, you could definitely see the people who are comfortable in it. And, and honestly, um, that was one thing I noticed. I'll use the mixed race because that's the one I was in. Um, but you could really see where Sarah's experience and my experience shined through over say ev and cecily ev's second race up there cecily's first although they have a lot of canoe experience and a lot of different conditions um it just you know it, it became apparent within the first 10 minutes of the race like they were a little more tentative um setting up the calls for the waves and like riding them straight down and i think that's yeah. kind of where we got away so 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 when you're taking these are you uh letting the way because like in in outrigger sometimes they they talk about the the wave speed and basically being patient on the wave and basically riding on the top of the bump but i was wondering if that would be not advisable because what you were talking about with the stern getting then potentially getting buried if you're on the top uh, is that or am I so not no, thinking about that properly because it, it also depends on the the length of the waves too right yeah, so I would say that the waves up there were definitely the like the most downwind conditions, like true downwind I've done in a C2. Um, so what I mean by that is the wave frequency was pretty far apart, and they were pretty okay. large. Um, now, again, this is for marathon C2. I mean, if you were in like an OC, you'd be like, these aren't big. But <laughs> I mean, right. like in a big body of water, but they would have been good practice if you wanted to do some downwind stuff. They were, they were pretty good size. Um, so we were definitely like, you had to kind of back up the waves. So like the way I think of it in like an outrigger situation would be similar to like when you're riding stern wake in a C2 or side wake in a C2, like you want to make sure you let the boat ease up enough so you're like really on the ride so it's a little further back than most people like are comfortable um just because again your calls have to be right you know if you're riding far back it's easy to get sucked in so it's the same thing on a bigger wave like these wind waves you're riding is you want to be as far back as you can be comfortable and stay like good on the wave so you're not falling off of it you're not um spinning out which is kind of the risk but it, it, we actually had to kind of back up on the waves because they were, you would kind of get on one and it would shoot you forward so fast that you'd bury the bow paddler. Yeah, so, that, yeah. Because <laughs> that's what they I, talk about burying the bow and the outrigger yeah. too and why they say to have some reserve, you know, like stay up on it until yep. you find your connector and then and then you go yes. and then plumb it down into the next and connect and, them. And that's exactly it, right? So, like, we, we were going, um, and, yeah, you'd have – it was actually funny with Ryan. Sometimes he's like, I'm getting kind of buried. I'm like, Ryan, you might have to, like, actually back paddle to keep yourself, like, on the spot because we were – like, our hulls, in my opinion, are more designed to shoot down the wave than, like, most OCs are. Like, they want right. you to kind of sit on top. So we tend to, like, as soon as we get hooked on, we, like, our boats just, like, lurt, like, lunge forward. And um, that was actually kind of – scary because it was a real risk of sinking so we were just like like you'd see on a guy on the ocean like you know on a wave just like holding his paddle sort of like steer maybe doing a little bit of steering or just bracing mm -hmm. with his paddle to yeah. hold stability in line that's what we were doing um see so that's where i said like you couldn't really gain on people that well because you right. you aren't yeah. gonna pass that wave and then, like you said, you're, you connect them, so then you feel the next one come, and then you can kind of shoot through the one you're on and, and kind of get them, you know, get a jump on the next wave. Uh, so yeah. I know Mike, Mike was telling me that he was telling Steve, like, back off, back off, back off. Like, I'm getting buried. And Steve's like, I'm not paddling. Like, I can't back off more than that. <laughs> 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 
Well, that's when you were saying that. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, I, I could see like, and I've 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 ridden on some waves, like like motorboat waves too. Sometimes yeah. when you can feel this, um, where you start to feel that wave, and you're like, man, this is awesome. And so like, you keep paddling, but then you just you just you speed up really fast for a short amount of time, yep. but you don't realize how much you're losing because then you bury your bow and you just like come up to a complete like halt almost. Yeah, yeah we, so. we see that really heavy in the, the, the mid to back pack, right? With people that don't quite understand waves. We, we see one thing. We see uh, a little bit of an apprehensive calling of the, the hups or the huts, the switches, whatever you want to go with, that results in boats that zig and zag, and they're all over the place in a wave. And it's, it's uh, very tricky, very difficult. But then the biggest thing that we see a lot of times is that they won't just settle back into that wave. They want to constantly be paddling, and what happens is, is they end up paddling themselves up into the next wave and actually going slower and then getting spit right back out and actually losing a wave in some instances. Yeah, I, that's exactly, Bill. You can see it like at the start of a race if you've ever been kind of in the back and there would be like the big pack roller, and you'll see a lot of times people are trying to sprint through it, and like you're not going to make it, and then you're just burying the bow into the wave and like taking on water, you know, having issues with that. So it's, it's a different sensation, like than a, than a tailwind will be like, we, I mean, we were, we were pretty much surfing a tailwind for pretty much two hours solid. Um, you know, which is, is something that you don't get to do very often in marathon canoe, at least not in Michigan. So that was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a totally different skill set. And I mean, you were seeing teams, with really good paddlers that were struggling in it. And then you were seeing, you know, teams with really good paddlers that had a great day. Um, Guy and Jeremy, fantastic day. They, they were super solid, just like going great in that stuff, which was awesome to see. So Yeah, that's awesome. Um, sorry to get us off on a tangent, but I thought it was a, a good point where we could uh, have have a little bit deeper, deeper discussion. So... Um, why don't we uh, move on to the, the final day and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so day three, uh, we start basically in Schwinnigan, do a little buoy lap, run a portage with like a very crazy, well, I think it's a crazy downhill. It's just very steep and very long and very gravelly. <laughs> um, and then uh, paddle another hour or so, portage again. Then we get into the what I consider to be the the big river conditions of uh, of the classic, where we hit a lot of hydraulics, a lot of turbulence, then go through the rapid deforge, uh, and then after that, it's just a 45 minutes as hard as you can through some really sucky, sh- kind of shallow water into the finish, uh, where we finish on this. Uh, I can't remember the name of the island, but we finish on an island beach. Um, that's on the St. Lawrence. So we don't go into the St. Lawrence Seaway proper, but you you can see where the water color changes and the river the rivers mix. So um, it's pretty cool, great great atmosphere. The, the finish line is the best, I would say the best finish line party of the three Triple Crown races because you're a little bit more alive <laughs> than you would be. And, and the French Canadian crowd knows like how to throw a party. They've got vendors there and food trucks and a main stage playing music. It's, it's really a fun, fun vibe at the finish line. Um, but anyway, uh, day three, usually the top positions, um, they kind of are just like, we're going to stay together and, it is pretty typical that the first place team, if they have more than a few seconds, will just try to stay with the second place team. So the goal isn't really, I mean, unless they have something like really lucky happen, they're not really trying to like win the day or even break away. It's more just like hold, hold your time gap. Um, So the second place team or the third or fourth place team is usually trying to make a big push. um, If that race is tight, and then everybody else, it's um, it's kind of interesting. You start the third day, and it's hard for the teams to break apart because we're all exhausted. So, like, the, the sprint speed isn't really there. Um, so, it's usually, like, almost a single file line into the first portage. 
And uh, then after that portage, it starts to break a little bit and we get more like traditional packs where you get, you know, the first four or five together and then the next four or five together. And then after the the last portage and you go through the rapids, um, things really start to break because you realize you've got an hour to go in the race and and it's just put all the chips on the table and see what you can get. So um, typically the teams that didn't have a quite as good uh, second day rebound on day three. Uh, so we saw a little bit of that. Um, but this year, uh, Guillaume Blay and Jimmy Pellerin took the win on day three. So second cumulatively, but first on the day. Uh, Mike and Steve were right on their stern. And I think then uh, Christoph Marchand and Weston Willoughby rebounded into third for the day, but fourth overall. And then uh, Christian Charette and Pio Kesnel crossed the line fourth with Louis Simon Pruneau and Serge Paget finishing the day in fifth, but right on their stern wave. So um, that led for the first first podium finish for um, Louis Simon Pruneau and Serge Paget in a triple crown race. Uh, that's super cool. Um, Louis Simon's been watching the race up there for years since he was a kid always wanted to paddle and is now um really he's actually had a really impressive triple crown this year did all three races and uh they have a trophy i don't know exactly how it translates but they recognize a paddler 20 and under who's had like the best performance and uh, he won that this year so that was really exciting to see and obviously surge has been consistently in the top five and top 10 in the triple crown races. So um, I don't think anyone really had them picked to be third, but they had three really consistent solid days. And that's what you need to do at classic to land on the podium. So uh, that was really neat to see. Uh, Sure. It was, yeah, it was pretty, I would say the third day conditions were pretty typical. Uh, not a lot of wind or waves, you know, a little bit of headwind here or there, but nothing, nothing that was crazy, um, which was, was a nice break. I think we were all tired of being beat, <laughs> beat up on the first two days. Thank but you for some the, normalcy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, we were all kind of worried about the, the wind forecast was pretty high again. Uh, so a lot of people ran with extra decking just to be sure they wouldn't have issues uh, with sinking or anything, which ended up the areas that are typically rough were very, very flat. So there was almost, almost no wave paddling, except maybe at the, like the last, you know, mile you get some just because the river's opening up into the St. Lawrence and you get, depending on the water levels between the two rivers, you can get some like back current, you can get wind from a different direction. You can just get, you know, just different, different conditions. There's a lot more boats down there, like motor boats mm-hmm. and things in the water. So um, you'll get yeah. some of that, but it was, a, it was an exciting day. We got uh, three in the mixed race. We had three mixed boats in the pack together at the end of the day. Ryan and I were always a bridesmaid. <laughs> we got second <laughs> again, but uh, it was Francis and Ev took the win. So that was cool to see them at least get the day. Um, Sarah and Christoph put a hole in their boat on the final portage, but didn't realize it until the pack started to like sprint at the end and they were filling up with water. So we had lined up on their side, expecting them to have the best sprint speed at the end of the day. And then as soon as Guy and Jeremy started to go, they just like fell off the pack. And we're like, what just happened? And then, you know, it kind of (laughs) broke away, not in our favor. So like Francis and Ev were Mm -hmm. on, so they they got a jump on us but um it was it was still a really exciting finish and it's honestly I like my day three to have like a pretty tight and kind of tactical finish like that just because it hurts really bad and it it makes it hurt slightly less when you're so focused on your pack positioning and your strategy for the end of the race it makes the last uh, the last bit below the rapids go faster <laughs> yeah for sure for sure. All right. Uh, Bill, do you uh, have anything else you want to 
Boy, yeah, not not really. I appreciate the fantastic rundown. I would like yeah. to say congratulations to everybody who participated and finished this year. Um, also, a quick shout out to, uh, I believe, Caitlin and Lydia did the Triple Crown together from Texas. Um, so we had a Texas women's team that did it. Uh, Michelle and Phoebe won the overhaul overall for the women's category. Um, yeah. I think that's about all I've got. What do you have, Kevin? Anything? Yeah, for sure. Um, I will. I would like to add. I would like to say thank you, Rebecca, for giving us such a nice, detailed um, explanation of everything uh, classic related. Um, and we do still plan on chatting with the um, Asable and Classic champs uh, when we can get around to it. Um, we're still going to do. Um, some more content this off season for sure. Um, and definitely be on the lookout for this year's paddlers to watch for next year. Um, that was a big, uh, a big hit last year. So we are definitely planning on doing that again this year. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think that is, that is good. Rebecca, do you have anything you want to add before we close this one out? Uh, I just, want to add a if you haven't been up to classic absolutely go up there and try it uh it's unlike any of the other races that we do i think each triple crown race really fills kind of a, a niche and and this one's super different but the atmosphere the crowd the you know the people the party at the end um and it it really is a cool celebration when everyone finishes because we all finish like relatively close together time-wise. So like the first place guys are still there on the beach when the last place person comes in. And it really is a, a cool thing to see when you're like, we just battled out there on the river for three days and we all made it. <laughs> and uh, I, I would really recommend anyone go up there if you're nervous about it and just chat with someone who's gone and, and just it's, it's a blast. <laughs> All right. Very well said. And with that, we will sign off today. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the Canoe Race World podcast. Until next time, keep paddling on. Thank you for listening to the CanoeRaceWorld.com podcast, where we love marathon canoe racing and aren't afraid to say it. Be sure to visit the website at CanoeRaceWorld.com and don't forget to support our sponsors who make this whole thing possible. Until next time, keep paddling. <laughs>